What's up, everyone? And welcome to our episode of Two Truths and a Lie, a podcast hosted by the interns of the Nephrology Social Media Collective. My name is Priya Yenaberry, and I'm a transplant nephrologist at Indiana University in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I am honored to be your host for today. Y'all have such a treat in store for you because today's topic has definitely created a lot of buzz in the nephrology world recently. Today, we are going to talk about xenotransplantation. I hope you all are as excited as we are to get this episode going. So let's jump right in and introduce each of our panelists to you. Our first panelist today is Zach Sarah. Hey Zach, can you introduce yourself? Hey everyone, my name is Zach Sarah and I'm currently a fourth year student at McGovern Medical School at UT Health Science Center in Houston, Texas. I'm super pumped to be here and excited to talk about our very interesting topic. Great, thanks Zach. Our second panelist today is Dr. Christelle Wikon-Kameni. Hey, Dr. Wikon-Kameni, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? For sure. Hey, everyone. My name is Christelle Wikon-Kameni, also known as Dr. Dub, and I'm currently a chief resident in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I am both grateful and excited to be participating in this podcast with these marvelous people today. I do not have any conflicts of interest to declare. Fantastic. Thanks, Christelle. And last but not least, our third panelist on today's episode is Mohamed Ibrahim. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Mohamed Ibrahim. I go by Dr. Mo. I'm a kidney transplant physician and scientist at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. I'm very, very excited to be with this amazing group today in this podcast. Thanks, you guys. So glad that you get to be here to do this today. What a great group. Okay, everyone, so here how, here's how today's episode is going to work. Each of our panelists will present three statements. The catch is one of their statements is a lie. After a panelist presents, we will poll the group and hear their thoughts on which statement they think is the lie. For those of you playing at home, take a guess as well and see if you're right. Once the polls close, our panelists will tell us how we did. All of these statements are very interesting and the answers will definitely surprise you. I know they surprised me. So without further ado, let's get started. Zach, do you want to start us off today? Of course, Priya. Looking forward to it. Here it goes. So, statement one. There are documented attempts of xenotransplantation of all of the following organs into humans. Cornea, heart, liver, kidneys, skin, testes, blood, and pancreatic islet cells. Statement 2. Attempts at xenotransplantation in humans date back to the 17th century. Statement 3. Endogenous retroviruses that are found in the genome of all porcine cells present a risk of infection to the human recipient. Okay, wow Zach, starting our show off really strong, because all of those sound like truths to me. I mean, with all the ongoing research in the field, I can only imagine that there have been attempts with all sorts of tissues, but come on, I don't think all this started in the 17th century. I think that's way too early. So I think number two is the lie, but let's see what the group thinks. Christelle, what are your thoughts? I would honestly have to agree with you about statement number two being the lie, Priya. I can't imagine anyone trying to transplant an organ from an animal into a human in the 1600s especially since sterile surgery practices 
didn't come into play until the late 1800s. I can see statement number one being the truth due to the fact that there are a lot of medical conditions with pathologies in each of those organ systems. And it makes sense to me that researchers have been trying to get creative with finding ways to alleviate human suffering from those pathologies. Though I'll admit that the xenotransplantation of testes sounds a bit strange to me. Statement number three sounds true to me too. It sounds intuitive to me that the cells of a non-human animal would have viruses and or other organisms not native to humans that could potentially wreak havoc on the human immune system if allowed to. This would be a reason to carefully monitor patients with transplanted organs from animals, especially in the setting of immunosuppressive medications. Okay, okay, very interesting. And I like where you were going with that statement three. Infection is always on the forefront of everyone's mind when we think transplant between human recipient and donor. So I'm sure there is a laundry list of potential infections that can arise when we jump species. What about you, Mo? Agree? Disagree? Wow. I'm really surprised about the testes xenotransplantation in statement number one. I know that the other tissue xenotransplants are true. However, I'm very curious to know if the testes xenotransplantation was really performed. So I would say that statement number two is probably a lie, at least for the testes. As far as statement number two, I think it is true. Xenotransplantation was always envisioned even in the ancient times. For example, the Sphinx in Egypt, it has a head of a human and a body of a lion. That's one form of body xenotransplantation in my opinion. Now for the statement number three, I believe this is true as well. Because the recipient will be immunocompromised, and this can lead to risk of infection with porcine retrovirus as well as uh, other infections. So I'm very curious to find the answers. Well, I def- definitely agree with both of you. These are kind of tricky, and Zach is definitely making us think good and hard about this. So while we are in between two statements, I think we might go ahead and choose statement two as not being particularly truthful. Not necessarily that the concept is false, but the timeline. Zach, were we right? So y'all definitely had some great thoughts, and I'm glad I was able to generate some discussion. I'll uh, add some suspense and run through each statement now. We'll find out. So my first statement about the different types of xenotransplanted grafts that have been attempted is true. All of those that I listed have been indeed attempted in the past, obviously with limited success. I think of these What was most shocking to me were the attempts by Dr. Voronoff to transplant chimpanzee and baboon testes into humans in an attempt to restore sex drive in older men. This didn't work out so well. He did, however, also perform the first human pancreatic islet cell transplants to treat patients with severe type 1 diabetes, although interestingly, we now know that this process requires the islet cells from two to three donors in order to be clinically effective. The history of skin xenograft transplantation was also fascinating, as there were a variety of donor animals that were attempted, including sheep, dogs, cats, even pigeons. And some of the attempts even used pedicled skin grafts, um, and these were mostly attempted with sheep. And this involved keeping the donor immobilized and attached to the recipient for a period of several days. Corneal transplants with pig grafts are thought to be one of the most promising to become a reality in the new future, and there has been a lot of excitement surrounding the recent heart xenotransplant conducted at the University of Maryland. Unfortunately for us uh, that are interested in nephrology, the kidneys do face some significant barriers for research, as we have good therapies to bridge patients to allograft donation. 
in this case hemodialysis, so ethically it is difficult to justify risky experimentation with xenotransplantation at this point. Okay, great. A big sigh of relief, because selfishly I'm glad we did not get our first statement wrong. I know that we as a scientific community have been researching all sorts of tissues across all sorts of species. I guess in the kidney world where I live, we try and minimize exposure to different donors, say in a combined liver kidney or heart kidney transplant, so I didn't realize that we used multiple donors in terms of really early islet cell transplantation, so that's really interesting. Okay, so we've researched all different kinds of tissues from an assortment of different animals. Let's move on to your next statement. When did this all start? So Priya, it also is true that xenotransplantation dates back to the 17th century. I'll admit this one was a little tricky since the first attempt at xenotransplantation was with blood products, of which the first documented case were by Dr. Jean-Baptiste Denis of France, sorry for the pronunciation, in the late 1600s. I bring this up to highlight that humans have been thinking about xenotransplantation for a long time, dating back even to Greek mythology, for example Icarus with the bird wings, and as Mo mentioned, the Sphinx in early Egypt. So first came blood, followed by those skin grafts, but even as early as 1838, the first attempts at solid organ xenotransplantation were made uh, with corneal transplants from donor pigs. I think it's pretty amazing to reflect on how far we have come over the past 300 plus years, but how we still have some work to do before xenotransplantation becomes a primetime reality. Wow, that's so interesting, and I think what you said is really eye-opening. If you look back in time, whether it be in religion, folklore, or early science, there are all sorts of references of what we would now call xenotransplantation. Mo and Zach both mentioned Greek mythology, but other creatures in different cultures have popped up. Centaurs were part human and part horse, seen in the ancient Roman world, and even more recently in the beloved literary universe of Harry Potter. It seems that our civilization has always thought of this concept, but now we are looking at it through the eyes of science as a possible solution for our global organ shortage crisis. I knew that research in the field of xenotransplantation has been going on for a while, but I would have never guessed that it would have been that early in our history. Okay, so I guess if this is uh, the first two were truths, then that leaves us with our last statement. Right, Priya. So that means my final statement about endogenous retroviruses in pigs posing an infectious risk to humans is my lie. Interestingly, there are retroviruses found in almost all porcine cells, known as porcine endogenous retroviruses, or PERVs for short. These viruses are not pathogenic in pigs, but were originally thought to be potentially pathogenic in humans. However, to date there have been no documented instances of these viruses infecting humans. It is important to note though that in these trials I just mentioned, there was weak or no immunosuppression used, so there is concern that this possibility is not entirely ruled out. The lack of transmission is thought to be due mostly to a lack of functional PERV receptors in recipient species. As of 2017, there were successful generations of live piglets in which PERVs were inactivated using CRISPR technology, and continued work uh, with this could help reduce the theoretical risk of PERV transmission to zero. And with that, I'll turn the mic back over to our host Priya. I hope you all found this as interesting as I did, and if you want some more reading on the history of xenotransplantation, check out our show notes with more information on the wonderful review article written by Dr. David Cooper. Thanks, Zach. Wow. So your statement number three was the lie, and who would have guessed it? 
it is definitely reassuring to know that these retroviruses have been studied for a while and that scientists are continuing to find ways to decrease what seems to be an already small risk of transmission. Again, lots of questions that pop up when we step into such a complex field of research. Okay, what a way to start the show right at the very beginning, with a small jump back into history to where it all started. Okay, next up, Dr. Dub, you're up next. Why don't you go ahead and share your statements with us? I would be delighted to. My three statements are as follows. So with statement number one, knocking out pig genes responsible for the expression of antigens that primates have natural antibodies against is the only way found thus far to protect pig kidney tissue from the primate immune response. Statement number two, in the early studies of pig kidney xenotransplantation, moderate to severe proteinuria with resulting hypoalbuminemia were uniformly documented, which required frequent infusion of human albumin. Statement number three. The FDA has suggested that xenotransplantation be limited to patients with serious or life-threatening diseases for whom adequately safe and effective alternative therapies are not available, while limiting the therapy to those patients who have potential for a clinically significant improvement with increased quality of life following the procedure. Oh man, another good set of statements, all sort of focusing on the transplantation process and the science itself. Dr. Mo, tell me what you think about these three things. They all sound pretty good, yeah? Wow, hard choices again. I'm not very sure about the first statement, and I hope it is a lie. Because I know that there are some ongoing efforts to manipulate the immune system so that it will decrease the chances of rejection of xenotransplants. I think that the second and third statements are true, however. The FDA is still very strict about the safety of xenotransplants. I can definitely agree with you there, Dr. Mo. The FDA has very strict rules in place when it comes to animal research in general, so I know that they are watching this field of research very closely. Zach, how about you? What are your thoughts? Hmm. I think I'm going to have to go with statement two as the lie. I'm sure in the early studies, rejection was an issue, but surely figured out something to keep the proteinuria to a more mild level. Guess we'll find out, though. Nice point, Zach. I'll be honest. I'm sure that there was proteinuria, but I'm not entirely sure how much. So I think we all might have some differing opinions here, Christelle. We agree that there are several different types of immunity our body uses when it comes to infection defense, and in today's case, transplantation. But who knows how much of proteinuria is actually coming out of these allografts. So Dr. Dub, why don't you settle this for us? Which one of these is your lie? So the lie was statement number one which was knocking out pig genes responsible for the expression of antigens that primates have natural antibodies against is the only way found thus far to protect pig kidney tissue from the primate immune response. So to further explain, this statement was a lie because while it is true that we can knock out pig genes responsible for antigen expression that primates have natural preformed antibodies against, this is not the only known way to protect pig kidney tissue from the complement and or coagulation-mediated destruction caused by the primate immune response. The other known way of protecting pig kidney tissue via genetic manipulation is to insert human transgenes that can protect against human complement, coagulation, or inflammatory responses. 
the expression of a human complement regulatory protein like CD46, CD55, or CD59, and or a human coagulation regulatory protein like thrombomodulin, tissue factor pathway inhibitor, or endothelial protein C receptor, has been shown to provide graft protection. Further graft protection is made possible by the knockout of the following pig antigens, galactose alpha-1,3 galactose, N-glycolyl-neuraminic acid, and the SDA antigen. A substantial reduction of primate antibody binding to pig vascular endothelial cells has been identified in the absence of the expression of these pig antigens. All of the aforementioned genetic manipulations have resulted in a decrease in antibody-mediated rejection after a pig organ has been transplanted into a non-human primate. Wow. Okay, so leave it to our intricate complement system to again play such a pivotal role in our immune system. I mentioned the knockout pigs earlier in the show, so I'm really glad that you took the time to explain the importance of it now. We really couldn't have moved forward in this research without the isolation of these specific antigens and getting rid of them. Okay, so if that was the lie, why don't you tell us more about the rest of the statements? Lots of interesting stuff to say, I would think. Yeah, so moving on to our second statement. It is absolutely true that in the early studies of pig kidney xenotransplantation, moderate to severe proteinuria with resultant hypoalbuminemia were uniformly documented, which required frequent infusion of human albumin. It was uncertain as to whether these findings were due to activation of the immune response or to some sort of inherent physiological incompatibility between pigs and primates. However, in more recent studies involving non-human primates transplanted with pig kidney grafts, there has been minimal proteinuria with an absence of hypoalbuminemia noted. This strengthens the argument that activation of the immune response was a more likely cause of the earlier findings of proteinuria as opposed to physiological incompatibilities, especially in the setting of better control of the immune response due to the genetic modifications of donor pigs and or immunosuppressive therapies. It's great to hear that the proteinuria seems to be under control. And again, it seems like it is all linked to the fact that we are using knockout pigs for transplant. Proteinuria can be such a nonspecific finding, with so many conditions that cause it. And in transplant, sometimes it might be the first and only sign of problems that may come down the road for the graft. So, knowing that you will likely have minimal proteinuria in our early studies of xenografts is great to know so that in the future we can look at other potential causes and rule out species physiology mismatch far sooner. Okay, how about we move on to your last statement? For sure. Last, but most certainly not least, it is true that the FDA has suggested that xenotransplantation be limited to patients with serious or life-threatening diseases for whom adequate, safe, and effective alternative therapies are not available while limiting the therapy to those patients who have potential for a clinically significant improvement with increased quality of life following the procedure. Populations that are thought to be included in this recommendation include those who have had a high degree of allosensitization to human leukocyte antigens and or rapid recurrence of primary disease in previous allografts. Populations precluded from renal xenotransplantation as a result of this recommendation include those in which allotransplantation is contraindicated due to chronic infection or malignancy, 
for these would likely be associated with very poor outcomes due to the degree of immunosuppressive therapy needed to keep the transplanted kidney healthy. This recommendation from the FDA is critical because it provides additional guidance on who should be included in a pilot clinical trial of pig, pig kidney xenotransplantation. Wow, that was really insightful. Thank you for that interesting information, Dr. Dub. I'm sure we all learned a thing or two or even three from your statements. Now let's move on to Dr. No. Why don't you go ahead and share our last set of truths and a lie? Thank you, Priya. Now these are my statements for the audience to try to figure out which ones are truths and which ones are lies. Statement number one. The transplantation could result in transmission of organisms that may not be normally pathogenic in humans, but can become so in the immunocompromised individual. Statement number two. Religious authorities completely oppose all forms of xenotransplantation. Statement number three. Non-human primates are no longer considered for future use in xenotransplantation. Okay, lots of things to address here. First, infection, which again is huge in the transplant world. Then, we have society's thoughts on such a hot-button topic, for which we could do an entire podcast just on that. And then, the potential uses of different species outside of pigs. I don't even know where to start, so I'm just going to ask Zach. Zach, what are your thoughts about these statements? <laughs> okay, Priya, well, uh, hmm, this is a tough one. For statement one, we talked about pervs a little bit earlier and established that those have not been shown to infect xenotransplant recipients. So maybe that statement's the lie? I would imagine there are some other conditions out there that could be transmitted, especially in the context of immunosuppression, so I could see this one going either way. For, for statement two, there are definitely some important ethical and religious considerations surrounding xenotransplantation. I know some religions have strong beliefs surrounding particular animals and their consumptions, such as kosher and Judaism and halal and Islam. I could definitely see there being some religious or religions that frown upon xenotransplantation, at least from particular animals, but it seems a bit strong that they would outlaw xenotransplantation entirely. For the third statement, non-human primates certainly should be a closer match to humans, and I would imagine that they must be more compatible for xenotransplantation, but I'm certainly no expert in the field. Ultimately, I think I'm going to have to guess that statement three is the lie. Okay, yeah, I definitely like how you walked me through that, because there was a lot to unpack with each of those statements, and sometimes I get lost in my own head. So, Christelle, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, this is tough. This is tough. But my gut and test-taking skills are telling me that statement number two is the lie. It seems like a vague and absolutist statement, and it makes more sense to me that the other two statements would be true. I'm glad you said that because, of course, you can never go wrong with using all of those test-taking skills we have learned over the last few years. So I think I would agree with you, Christelle, and I think that statement, too, is a lie. Um, but Mo, what's the final verdict? Take us through your statements. Well, for the first statement that said xenotransplantation could result in the transmission of organisms that may not normally be pathogenic in humans, but can become so in the immunocompromised individual, this is actually a true statement. This is mainly because it is difficult to predict the pathogens that may cause infection in a recipient of xenotransplanted organ only on the basis of our knowledge of naturally occurring zoonosis. 
This is because there are big differences between normal contact of humans with animals and contact of a recipient with a xenotransplanted organ. For example, the distance barrier is eliminated in the xenotransplant recipient. And this is because of the vascularization of the xenotransplants or even implantation of a non-vascularized tissue during the procedure. The potential for viral adaptation in an immunocompromised recipient and the potential for undetected spread of a latent viral infections are also, caring, also very concerning. For these reasons, during xenotransplant trials, close monitoring of infectious pathogens in the recipient is very important. However, it is equally important to consider the safety of their contacts and also this of the general public. Thanks, Mo. Again, infection is always going to be the topic on the tip of our tongues when it comes to anything in the transplant world. So, while I was, of course, hoping that this was a lie, I am not surprised that it isn't. I know that with these knockout pigs, we are able to focus in and remove particular molecular markers in the setting of immunity, but I wonder what other CRISPR technology can be used to target innate organisms in the porcine microbiome that may not agree with the humans. Technology has come so far, so I can't wait to see how it affects transplant ID. Okay, so we haven't found our lie yet. What's your next statement? Well, the next statement, or the second statement, religious authorities completely oppose neurotransplantation. Despite being widely controversial, this is actually not a true statement. The origin of this is that some religions like Judaism and Islam forbid consuming pig meat. So the general population of these religions tend to consider the xenotransplantation of, of pig organs into humans has the same ruling. Even some Christians raised ethical concerns about xenotransplantation. However, despite the general belief, the majority of the religious authorities of these religions did not oppose xenotransplantation. In 1999, a bioethicist from Queen's Hospital, Dr. Fred Rosner, has published an article. He has explored the Jewish view of using pigs for xenotransplantation. He has concluded that although Jewish laws forbid Jews to raise or eat pigs, there was no such rule for the use of pigs to cure human illness or to save human lives by xenotransplantation. By the same token, in the year 2000, the head of the Catholic Church, Pope Paul John II, stated the Vatican's acceptance of the transfer of animal organs to humans as long as the result does not harm the recipient physically or psychologically. And most recently, in October 2021, following the famous NYU kidney xenotransplant case, Egypt's top religious institution, Al-Azhar, which Muslims around the world look for for guidance, has ended up an ongoing debate by issuing a religious ruling permitting pigs' kidneys to be transplanted into human body if no other alternatives are available to save the patient's life. I'm really glad that you brought this up, Mo, because in the medical world, I know many of us are excited about xenotransplantation. We are in a time where a population has many people at or near end organ failure. You and I just happen to be in the world of transplant nephrology, and we see so many people on dialysis waiting for a transplant. So we see xenotransplantation as this amazing opportunity to help patients get off dialysis, and in the case of the Maryland group, other organs such as heart transplants. But other people outside of our medical world might see the idea of transplanting from pigs differently. 
I'm happy to see that more people are open to the idea than against it, but this may be a point of contention that will always linger in the background. Okay, moving on. So I guess our last statement is true then? Tell us more about it. Well, finally for my third statement, non-human primates are no longer considered for future use in xenotransplantation. Actually, this is a true statement. Non-human primates trials involving kidneys, hearts, and livers were conducted between the 1920s to the 1990s. As they were genetically closer to the human than the pigs, however, researchers found that there were several limitations that made them not suitable, including ethical concerns, high risk of cross-species infection, transmission to human, difficulty in breeding, and organ size differences, and this is just to name a few. It was not until the year 2003 when genetically modified knockout pigs were available as the source for the new transplants, and they have several distinct advantages. Pigs are easier to raise, they grow up quickly, and will have organs similar in size uh, to the size of the human organs, and this happens within a six-month period of breeding them. Pigs also reach the productive maturity quicker for large mammals, and they also have a relatively large litter size. They also have physiologic and anatomic similarities to human. It is for this reason that since the 1990s, porcine xenotransplants have overtaken non-human primates as the future of xenotransplantation. Of course, there is still the obvious genetic discrepancy that results in immunologic rejection and porcine infection as was discussed earlier by my colleagues. Okay, thanks Mo. Finishing our episode strong. So I guess the humble pig comes out on top as our xenograph species of choice. I never realized that these genetically modified knockout pigs have been available for almost 20 to 30 years now. You know, it's funny. I look back at my time while preparing for this episode and how I originally thought that this was an up-and-coming research, but it's easy to forget how long and hard people have been working. All of the benchwork and basic research that has happened before it reaches the bedside. More and more research is going to pop up because others are currently working on projects that we don't even know about. I know there are other ideas being explored, like tolerance-inducing strategies, such as simultaneous thymic transplantation, which, in theory, may allow for the reduction or cessation of immunosuppressive medications, which is very exciting to think about. I know we have a long road ahead of us in the field of xenotransplantation, but these lines of research and other future topics will start to surface and come to light as the years go by. Anyways, you can't help but argue, this is a very exciting time to be in nephrology. Well, everyone, that ends our show for today, Two Truths and a Lie, Xenotransplant Edition. A special thank you to our panelists, Zach, Christelle, and Mo. It was such a pleasure to chat with you guys on such a cool topic. I also want to thank all of you for joining us in our conversation regarding such a hopeful field. I know that I learned quite a bit about the topic from my colleagues, and I hope you did too. Be sure to tune in to our next episode, where we discuss another thought-provoking topic and what lies ahead in our ever-changing field that is nephrology. Thanks again for joining us. My name is Priya. See y'all next time.